theme I'd like to explore a little bit this morning is the truth. The truth and our relationship with the truth. Aspects of the truth and our relationship with the truth. Probably for the majority of people engaged in this kind of practice and Dharma practice, the orientation, the drive in practice is very much towards the, the relief of suffering. And that's very normal, very understandable, very wise. And, of course, the Buddha very famously said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and freedom from suffering. And yet, at times for us, at times in, in a life of practice, in, in a retreat, in a course of practice, at times for some people, the suffering is actually not so prominent. It's not, we're not gripped by the torment of suffering so much. And what can become more important as a drive for a person is the inquiry into truth and a real seeking, searching for the truth. Now, actually, these are two sides of the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. And we need to understand that. So that to go deeply into the truth is, is to release suffering. And the kind of truth that Dharma practice is interested in is the truth that releases suffering, not interested in any other kind of truth. That's what truth means uh, from a Dharma perspective. And to free oneself from suffering, when one, the more one frees oneself, the more truth becomes uh, available and visible and conscious. And so, to quote from Jesus, you'll know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The truth shall set you free. <clears throat> and it's possible for us, and I would actually hope that it's uh, real for us, that we can have, as human beings, a lifelong passion for truth. A lifelong, uh, deep desire to inquire into the truth. That that's something that runs like a deep stream through our life. And it's not just the case that when uh, someone close to us dies or something happens that shocks us that we're suddenly like, well what's it all about? And it's not hopefully the case that through the busyness and and the, the stresses of life that our passion for truth gets dulled. And this lifelong Seeking this lifelong care about this brings for a person can bring is one of the factors that can bring sense of direction, deep direction, deep meaning, uh, dignity, nobility. It's interesting, though, talking to a lot of people and listening uh, in different situations to a lot of people. Our relationship to truth, even the word truth, and especially if you put a capital T, truth. And for a lot of people, there, from some people, there will be, the, the heart quivers in response to that, the heart opens and quickens in response to that. They love that, they love the, the journey of moving towards that. For other people, that word will trigger them the wrong way. And let's understand there's both personal and cultural reasons for this. And, you know, in a way, we're living now, at the, you know, with the knowledge of history of so much violence, so much war, so much struggle and strife over people arguing about what the truth is, especially religious truth. So there's real cultural reasons for that, postmodernism, etc., etc. So this culture, what's quite popular is instead of, well, my truth my truth and your truth is your truth and let's just happily coexist. Or a kind of not wanting to kind of probe too deeply. Very different in the Buddha's time, where he often, people, other seekers would come and debate with him or his disciples. And very much the sense is, one of us is wrong here, and it ain't me. And there's not this kind of like, it's okay that you believe that, it's okay that I believe this, and let's just be happy friends. And uh, There was still friendship there, of course, but there was not this backing off of actually debating something and engaging in that. 
And just a little while ago, a few months ago, I remember um, <coughs> saying, just saying something. I actually said it as a joke. It's like I said, uh, there's only one question and there are no answers. And I, I meant it as a joke. And someone uh, present just said, exactly. And it, it, was, it was a sense of that there was a real, the heart felt much more comfortable with viewing things that way. So I don't want to land too much one way or another. I really want to just open up this box and have a look. What is our relationship to truth and the whole idea of truth? And how are we approaching this? Remember, though, there may be something to kind of postmodern notions of this truth and that truth and not wanting to settle on one thing. There may be something quite deep to that. But what is the truth that frees the deepest, that frees the most totally? Because for the Buddha and for the Dharma, that's the most important question. So we can have things that we feel comfortable or not comfortable with, but what frees the deepest? That ends up being the most important question. In this practice that we do, insight meditation and vipassana, there's this huge emphasis, of course, on awareness and mindfulness and bringing awareness. And in the course of that, everyone notices this, everyone, we begin to very naturally notice, we notice uh, what we hadn't noticed before, just because we're paying more attention, the attention is more alive. And we begin to notice what we had otherwise overlooked. So one of the first insights people have is, wow, how much thinking is going on, what the mind is doing most of the time. We'll just begin to notice this. Begin to notice the body sensations, the life of the body, the movement of life in the body, and the way that expresses things. Begin to notice our emotions and our emotional life. All this is kind of part of opening to the truth, to truth. Also, in the course of this practice, we are willing to open to what we had otherwise turned away from. In other words, suffering and what's difficult and what's painful and what's hard to look at, what the mind, the heart would want to recoil from. There is this encouragement to not turn away, to open. We begin to see, too, how, we, how the mind distorts things distorts uh, with assumptions and conclusions about all kinds of things, about self, about other, about life. All, all this begins to uh, be revealed in the field of awareness, of, of mindfulness. Usually when we, when we think of the word truth, we, we also think in terms of facts. So this fact is either true or false. And that's understandable. I want to talk about that. But there's, there's other aspects of truth too that in a way I want to include. So there's facts that one can say right or wrong or whatever. And there's also something that's a little bit hard to put it into words, but a kind of receptivity to wonder. Receptivity to the mystery of life and the mystery of being human. It's not something we can put in the categories of right or wrong or fact or not fact. But there's something in the being that can open to that receptivity. And there is, we could say, a truth in that. So I very much want to include that as well. It seems as if this factual truth and receptive truth are separate at first. But actually, maybe they're not. But there's receptivity to beauty, receptivity to the miracle of being miracle of existence, the wonder of it, of being. So first, well, one of the first questions in all of this, we should always ask in the Dharma, and with all this kind of stuff is, okay, what obscures this? What obscures my seeing and my knowing and my opening to the truth? It's always an important question. What gets in the way? as well as what encourages and what feeds it, what gets in the way, what dulls that passion? As a human being, I can have a really deep passion for truth. What might dull that passion? And just, I want to go into this in the talk, but just right away, some things are, are quite obvious. 
we're bombarded with advertisements and, and this kind of consumer culture and bombarded with uh, messages telling us to do this, be like this, buy that, don't do this, a certain way of being and holding some things as important or not. Not to underestimate the power of that influence on us. TV, media, it's, it's massive the way we imbibe this and, and the, the way it uh, ricochets and reverberates in the being and influences the being. Whether you're just driving or you're just at home doing some cleaning, whatever, and the radio's on in the background, we're sort of listening and sort of not, and it's just like a kind of static. It doesn't really matter. But on another level, it's doing something to our capacity to see really clearly, really deeply, really truthfully, to be really present. And if we're talking in terms of receptivity, it dulls that receptivity, it will dull that receptivity. So it doesn't matter, and it matters greatly. And then we see other, other aspects, the way very easily and very humanly we can contract around the self-definitions that we have, around the roles that we have, uh, spouse, partner, mother, father, uh, child, um, teacher, student, artist, what, whatever it is, executive director. And, and so easily we kind of bind ourselves with those definitions and the seeing as well is bound. The seeing as well is bound. We, ha- we have to understand this. Sometimes a person feels I don't have a role and actually is bothered by that, feeling like I'm, I'm not important in the world, I don't know who I am. That too is a kind of cramping around self-identity which will blind the seeing. So there's a lot to this. There's, there's a lot to all this. I, w- I want to go into it a little bit deeper. One way we can kind of approach this and uh, to sort of divide it up in a little bit more bite-sized chunks is we could divide. It's just convenient division. It doesn't mean too much. We could divide three kinds of truth that we might uh, open to and investigate and be interested in. Person, what we could what we could call personal truth, or personal truths what we could call universal truths, and what we could call ultimate truths. And I'll go in, into these uh, during the talk. So personal, universal, and ultimate. By personal, I mean what is true of me and kind of for me, in me. So what are my patterns in life, my particular psychological, mental, emotional, perceptual patterns? For instance... What do I tend? Do I know myself in relation to certain things like anger? Something happens. What's my tendency? I bite the other person's head off. I shout. I can't hold it in. I express it or I withdraw and I go into a sullen silence. What's my pattern there? Do I communicate? And if I communicate, what's my pattern in communication? Do I tend to internalize anger? Do I tend to blame myself or do I tend to blame another? What's just my pattern? And to know, to know myself in that way. What is my, are my patterns in relationship? The way I relate, the way I am in love, the way I am in work, in relationship. My personal tendencies of, of perception, the way I tend to see a certain situation or my life. Do I tend to see myself as a victim? This is a pattern of perception. Do I tend to see myself as a victim? To know all this, what are my beliefs? We've touched on this a little bit in the other talks. About self and about situations. What are my strengths? Spiritually speaking, and what are my weaknesses? This is really important. Oftentimes we just see our weaknesses. What are my strengths? The the kind of qualities that I know. that These are nurtured in me, they're they're strong, they're capable in me. So strengths and weaknesses. All of this, all of this, not easy and takes a real sincerity, in a way that sincerity, in that sense of truthfulness, this willingness to look, is really at the basis of the path. There is no path without sincerity, without a fullness of sincerity with ourselves about what goes on for us. 
So that's really important, this quality of sincerity. But it may be, and I've cer- I see this in others, and I've certainly seen it in myself in the past, that within this willingness, we may actually overbalance and over-focus on the negative. In our, in our willingness, out of every good-natured good, uh, intention, we may over-focus on the negative, on what's wrong with us, on our own pain, etc., and it may it can be very easy to come into a view that because something is difficult or painful or negative it's in a way a deeper truth or somehow more true and we assume that a difficult emotion is somehow or it's very easy to assume that that's somehow getting at what's deeper in us it must be deep because it's more painful it's more difficult or that these faults are somehow more worthy of of attention, they're somehow more true. It's very easy for us to tip the balance like that. And both in a meditative setting, also in a kind of psychological, psychotherapeutic setting, very, very easy to do that and to get in a pattern of doing that. Set in a way of looking and way of believing and assuming that we're not aware is going on. And to question these assumptions, to question these assumptions. One pattern, which is very, very common, for instance, very common nowadays in the West, is the pattern of the inner critic and this harsh self-judge. I'm never good enough. Whatever I do, it's almost always uh, haranguing us and beating us up and harassing us in that way, badgering us, always kind of on top of us. And sometimes we don't actually turn to that with enough kind of strength and inward presence and really look at it and really start questioning it. Is what this inner critic is saying to me, is what it's saying, is it true? Is it true? It's almost like it has so much power, so much clout, and because it's so painful we retreat very quickly from it. We don't hang out long enough, turn towards it and actually even engage in a dialogue with it, <coughs> probe back at it a little bit. Is what you're saying true? Is that true? And we can actually have this dialogue. What would satisfy you? Seems this quality is never satisfied. What would satisfy you? And then maybe you get an answer from it. And not to just take that for granted, actually say, really? Maybe, maybe in the questioning of the inner critic, we actually see that it's not as powerful as it seems and not as substantial as it seems. We need to hang out with it and question it. Sometimes with this inner critic, it's so, it seems so long-standing, like it's been around as long as we can remember. And it seems like its origins are entirely lost almost in the past, or perhaps we can trace them back to early childhood. But it's very interesting. Maybe when it comes up, this inner critic, some of its origins are in the present, not just in the past. Not just in the past. Recently I was talking to someone, and there was this presence of the inner critic, very strong, very painful, we were talking, and in the course of the conversation, the person got in touch with what their deepest aspirations were in life, what was most important to them, what they most deeply wanted in life. And somehow, somehow, in that aligning, in that realigning, in that coming into alignment with what they most deeply cared about, was the most important thing for their heart, somehow in that, the inner critic just got very quiet and kind of dissolved. The origins were as much in the present as in the past. Whether or not the inner critic is active and strong for us, we as human beings tell ourselves uh, stories about ourselves and about our life. This is all still in the realm of personal truth. And uh, the story of my life. And again, really to ask ourselves, is this something that we need to be locked into? Because it's, 
is actually not the case that we need to be locked into our personal story. We might even have more choice in what story we tell ourselves about ourselves than we might feel. Is the story that I'm telling myself about myself, about my life, is that a healing story? Is it a story of possibility? Or is it a prison? We might have a lot more choice than we think. Is there, is there one story of my life? Is there one story of Rob or, or whoever, of Justin? Is there one story? When we look into this, begin to see that the story I tell myself and the story, the way I pick out events from my life and I join those dots, like I was talking about in another talk, and I string together a story that's very dependent on the mood I'm in. It's very dependent on the state of my heart in, in, in the time that I'm constructing that story. It's also to depend on the, my view at that time of what I think and conceive of as significant. Because I could look back on my life, 43 years so far, and, and trace different things depending on what I give importance to. I've been into a lot of different things over the years. One story or a story that's very dependent? One of the beautiful things about this kind of practice, a practice of mindfulness, is that something can happen when, when we begin, like on retreat, bringing a kind of continuity of mindfulness to our experience. And just, we, we, we forget and we come back, we forget, we come back. And, and the days begin to be uh, filled or a stream of more, more constant, relatively more constant. No one can be mindful all the time without breaks. But more constant mindfulness is running through the day. And in that and through that, something begins to be kind of punctured about uh, the whole construction of personal truth. And it's almost as if because of the continuity of mindfulness and the bare attention that what seems so central and so significant in my life, these personal psychological difficulties or truths or way we conceive of things, what seems so central and so true begins to just feel less substantial, less true even, less significant certainly just because of the stream of more constant mindfulness. It's almost like we need to be a little unmindful to kind of glue that construction of the personal story and the personal reality together. So, you know, very famous in Japanese Zen haiku, beautiful uh, art form. So, for instance, uh, I think it's by Basho, a very famous one, The Old Pond. A frog jumps in. Plop. And, you know, on one level it's like, boring, you know, (laughs) nothing there. On another level it's kind of highlighting what we may feel from one perspective is so central and so important in our lives. A little bit more mindfulness, a little bit more calmness that begins to recede and what we had overlooked and considered as just not so important because it didn't have so much to do with me begins to uh, kind of reveal its significance and it's a different kind of significance a person doing walking meditation you're right there you say my life my life is this and who I am and what I did and what I want to do and these are my struggles and this is my story and the foot touches touches the floor those sensations right now, the hand on the floor, this is my life. This is my life. So simple, so bare, so actual, so alive. This is my life. This step is my life. So not saying, and it really would be a mistake, to throw out the whole realm of personal truth. That really would be a mistake. Um, And actually... It's interesting, different sanghas, different kind of communities, even 
within this kind of practice have different tendencies and that's really not so much a tendency that Western insight meditators tend, tend to do too much. We, we don't tend to throw out the personal very quickly. But it really would be a mistake to throw it out. In this kind of practice, as we begin bringing more bare attention to meet our experience, and the, the personal story can begin to recede a little bit at times, or a lot at times, what begins to reveal itself, or to be revealed, is more what we could call universal truths, just through paying attention to the actuality of experience, the bare actuality of experience, not so consumed with the personal. Something... Uh, factors of existence begin to reveal themselves in, in a very obvious and striking way. Universal truths. So we could talk about what the Buddha talks about, three characteristics of existence. Three characteristics of existence. And they are um, impermanence, change, death. That's the first one. Unsatisfactoriness, the unsatisfactoriness or the presence of suffering also is the second one, dukkha. And the third one, this fact that nothing ultimately is me, can be found to be me or to belong to me, ultimately speaking. It's anatta, it doesn't be- nothing belongs to me. So these two, these three characteristics of existence as sort of manifestations of universal truth, that too, there's a willingness we need because if I just put them out, especially if they're new to you, if I put them out, it could feel like, wow, that's a little bleak. This is what I'm supposed to open to. The kind of, you know, it sounds pretty dire. Uh, and a certain willingness is needed, a certain willingness of the heart. We, we don't want to hide from the fact of death. It's difficult. Someone just yesterday was saying to me, I don't want to, I don't want to look at death. I, I don't want to. There has to be for us as practitioners a willingness. Am I willing to look at that? Change. Everything is dying. So the heart has this willingness to look at the difficult aspect of these three characteristics. But actually... To see the three characteristics, as we go deeper with them, it actually is not something that's dire. Sometimes it's taught as if it's something to be scared of, something that's bleak, and we need to just hang out with that bleakness and that sort of tragedy of existence, etc. Actually, as we contemplate them, joy comes. Joy and freedom. They, they are gateways to joy and to freedom. And contemplated in the right way, that's what they bring. So I, I feel I feel very much that these three characteristics begin to reveal themselves naturally and organically as we're paying bare attention to our experience. But then I feel we need to take them up as active, deliberate contemplations, which means actually deliberately tune in to the fact of impermanence, death, change. Deliberately tune in to the the suffering, uh, the unsatisfactoriness of experience and deliberately tune in consciously and sustain this as a meditation tuning in to the fact that we own nothing ultimately speaking and we can't find ourselves ultimately speaking things are not me, not mine and deliberately encourage that as a way of seeing a way of seeing that somehow these these three characteristics, their possibility opens up much more, uh, immensely it opens up if we can deliberately take them on as practices of ways of seeing. They open up incredibly profound possibilities of freedom. So this is... This is quite interesting, this point right there that I've just made in, in terms of deliberately taking something up as a practice, a doing a contemplation or doing a meditation. So that word, doing something, is, is also quite a charged word in spiritual circles. And there are uh, 
some who are into doing and consciously into doing this or that practice and others who are very much non-doing and speak the language of non-doing and I don't want to do and I think I touched on this briefly in another talk in the talk on the hindrances but in the context of talking about truth and specifically our relationship with truth a question who gravitates to what kind of practice What kind of personality, we could say, gravitates to what kind of practice and why, for what reasons? So this doing or not doing, meditation as not doing, meditation as doing, practice as non-doing, practice as doing, actually is a deeply contested issue for those who are into this kind of thing. But it's also something that's a very deep question. And... How much of my personal patterns, my personal preferences, my personal preconceptions and reactions are coming into that question the way I relate to that question? And if I'm coming from my preferences, from my preconceptions, from my reactions, from my likes, my dislikes, my personal patterns, is that a good enough reason for choosing? Is that a good enough reason for choosing? So to do, to not to do in practice is a very, very deep question. A person could, I'm not going to go too much into it, but just to say, a person could say, don't do, just let go of doing. And I hear that, someone hears that and says, great, I just won't do. I'll refrain from doing. But in that, there, without the subtlety, real depth of subtlety of attention, there's a whole whole load of doing that's left unchecked that's just going on and on and on we're just not aware of it so I'll say not do but actually there's a lot of of do, a lot of do-do left (laughs) Uh, these questions take an enormous amount of integrity an enormous amount of care an enormous amount of sincerity they're not easy questions they're very deep questions we could say ultimately there's nothing to do and you know in truth ultimately speaking we could say there's nothing to do there's nowhere to go there's a tr- there is a truth expressed there absolutely sometimes people have very little integrity very little integrity with this and just jump to there's nothing to do there's nowhere to go and then everything else you can see in the way they are has gone out the window the sensitivity has gone out the window the ethics have gone out the window, the care, the kindness, the receptivity. So someone can speak that language of ultimate truth, but the way they're living is lacking in sensitivity and lacking in receptivity and lacking in care and kindness. And it just doesn't it doesn't fly. So similar questions, it's connected but it's not quite the same, is we could conceive the path in, in a number of ways. A person could say, this is the path, eightfold path, this is it. The Buddha laid it down, very clear, step by step, and this is the practice. And we, as practitioners, have to follow this path and follow the practice. And if you do that, and if you do it properly, scrupulously, conscientiously, the result will be awakening. It will be awakening. You follow the steps, and boom, awakening. Other view, there is no formula. Don't even hope for a formula. Don't go near a formula. There is no cause and effect in in this area, in this realm of awakening. There's no cause and effect. Don't trust it. Cause and effect is an illusion. Grace we wait for grace or it comes with grace. It's spontaneous. Two views. question I have is based on what are we believing one or another? And you can, again, these are deep questions, difficult questions, but you could see a person who has a little bit of a wanting to control and wanting everything tied up, neatly packaged, and a kind of guarantee of something might gravitate out of that kind of fear to the first one. Just make sure if I do this, do this, check off all my boxes, then one day it will happen. Another person 
feels the personality or culture or upbringing or whatever feels very boxed in by any sense of that kind of steps or, or uh, you know clarity or, or formula or anything like that feels like that and uh, goes for the second one of course it depends what kind of teachers we hear and, and stuff like that the question is more based on what am I landing where Based on what in myself am I landing where? What are the movements that are pulling me, pushing me one way or another? And to, to open up to that question is then to have integrity and to have this deep care for the truth. So we talk about personal truth, we talk about universal truth, we can also talk about um, ultimate truth. Very, very important. And I said in a, uh, can't remember which talk, uh, that this bare attention, sometimes it's very tempting to feel that somehow by giving bare attention to the actuality of my experience, that is the kind of ultimate truth of things. Just this moment of touch, this moment of bare heat, of bare uh, pressure, and whatever, that's the ultimate truth. And uh, It's not, and, and I talked about why not, but so I, I want to kind of move on. Sometimes, sometimes, for some practitioners, sometimes, sometimes, with practice or even without practice, so either on retreat or off retreat or a person even without any meditation experience at all, sometimes there are what we could call changes of perception. Changes of perception. Something happens... Something happens in the being and something is, you could say, opened or shifted and the seeing and the heart, something changes and we look at the world and we look at the self in those moments and it's different. Something has changed quite dramatically in the perception. I was, years ago, years ago, I was reading a very beautiful journal of this very, um, I can't remember his name, he was a Trappist monk um, and a uh, very humble, be- beautiful person. And he, he kept it this journal. And one of the days, the entry was, um, he, he'd struggled a lot as a monk. And he, this was 20 or 25 years into his life as a monk. And um, he, he asked this question to, kind of to himself in his journal. He said, why is it that a bird could sing in the tree and one person just hears a pretty sound? And another person hears the expression of God's love. So what was, what, why is that? Well, you could say, why is it that at one time uh, for the same person there's that kind of shift? What's going on? These kind of changes of perception, that's just one in a particular tradition or whatever, but sometimes a person, the actual... L- texture of experience, one's on retreat or whatever and one goes out and is in the fields and it's as if everything is expressing a peace, uh, a, a huge kind of imperturbable peace is running through and containing all things or joy, everything, the growth of the plants, the singing of the birds, the, the movement of the clouds, the movement of a stream, it's all this joy, this eruption, this fountain of joy. Perception can shift sometimes. And in a way that one, one feels in those most mystical moments that one's seeing something truer. One feels one's seeing something truer. Or that everything is kind of held in this boundless compassion. Everything effortlessly held in, in the compassion of the universe. Everything is one. So lots of different kind of flavors. Everything is one. This usual sense of separateness kind of goes for a period, for a time. could be just a moment. And there's a sense of oneness. Oneness. That the actual truth of things is oneness. Or that the nature of things is that uh, consciousness is actually something boundless. It's infinite and it's uh, containing all things. Love running through, uh, holding all things in the universe. These sometimes it's difficult to hear about this kind of stuff. They're actually not that uncommon, both for meditators and also for non-meditators. 
could just be a one-off, often it is just a one-off. Um, but not that uncommon in human experience for something to shift sometimes in the perception of life and the universe and everything. What I want to say is, partly in, in relationship to this seeking of ultimate truth, is rather than dismissing that, which is often what we're taught to do, or often the inclination to dismiss those experiences, if they're not one-offs, and if they seem to be happening more than once, then to actually seek to cultivate them, seek to cultivate that change in perception as much as one can, because something shifting there in a way that can transform at a very deep level, potentially. So, if there can be this repetition, without grasping, but if there can be this repetition, this extension of a change of perception, something can begin to shift in terms of our views and our very deeply taken-for-granted views of what reality is. But it takes the repetition of this shift in perception. It's one, one of the approaches, it's not the only approach, it's one of the approaches. So to shift a view, or shifting views, ends up being the really key thing. Shifting views. Now this is not an intellectual movement, necessarily. It can, it can be partly that. But it's not just a mental movement. It often involves the heart opening often involves the heart being very touched. So those experiences that I described, and I know for some people it's difficult to hear that kind of stuff, and we feel like, oh, where am I now, and all that. But Those kind of experiences, whether it's momentary or, or for longer or whatever, open the heart. They, they, it's almost like they can't help, but something opens in the heart. The heart is opening and the seeing is changing. In a way, to open to the truth deeply cannot help but open the heart, cannot help but the heart be opened. And from the other angle, not to underestimate or to dismiss the power of a kind of religious aspiration or faith and holding that dearly in the heart, that that and staying close to that and aligning oneself to that and devotion to that, how that too can open the heart and, and shift the view not to dismiss that. So a couple of the popular ways in, in our circles, uh, sort of insight, meditation, related tradition circles, a couple of the most popular um, shifts of perception that then get a kind of, um, bring with them this lovely open-heartedness and kind of religious feeling are... Um, <coughs> a kind of sense of awareness, the mystery of awareness and the vastness of awareness, that which knows. A person begin to have an almost devotional sense of that, or a sense of oneness, those two. Beautiful, beautiful senses, uh, lovely things for a human being to begin to get a sense of. In opening to that, in drawing close to that, in tasting that, in opening and closing, getting a sense of that and being interested in that, there will come with it a freedom. A freedom will come with that. A sensitivity will come with that. Um, compassion also will come with that, with a sense of oneness, with a sense of the mystery of awareness of that which knows. So all that will come, freedom, sensitivity, compassion. Yes, and it will transform the being, but it still may not be the ultimate truth. still may not be that those things that which knows or the oneness of things may be the ultimate truth. We've got a very difficult situation here as practitioners. We don't want to discard this too quickly on the other hand. So it may not be the ultimate truth, but we don't want to discard it too quickly. If an experience like that happens, and if I even you know, if I'm able to have it more and more often a sense of oneness, a sense of um, this vastness of awareness. I don't want to throw it out too quickly because if I do, what happens is I just go back to the normal, conventional ways of seeing. Just automatically because they've got so much momentum of taken for granted habit. 
the heart, because I've discarded it too quickly, the heart isn't changed. The assumptions are not shaken. So there's a real dilemma here. There's a real dilemma. There's certainly a dilemma as a teacher because people come to me and they share these experiences. And I don't want to I don't want to burst the bubble too quickly. In a way one has to fall in love with this. You have to fall in love with this. Let it do its work, transform the being. And hopefully at a certain time uh, the being matures, the awareness matures and something moves on. Hopefully. In the Dzogchen tradition, and one of the Tibetan traditions, beautiful, and they have this beautiful, very wise saying. It says, trust your experience, trust your experience, but keep refining your view. Keep refining your view. In other words, don't just keep pushing the envelope, keep probing with the questions, but trust your experience. Don't throw it out. Another one of the very popular in our tradition, sort of Buddhist Dharma in the West, of these kind of where people move towards in terms of ultimate truth, is what kind of, how to put this, one way of practicing is very much the cultivation of a very sharp, very focused kind of microscopic awareness, really being able to divide up the moments um, very sharply. And uh, precisely, very microscopic awareness. Following that practice deeply with a lot of care and conscientiousness, it and in some periods, even a word for this, kalapas. And as if that's the ultimate truth of things. That's the nature of physical reality. Seems to relate to quantum physics and all that. And that's the nature of consciousness itself. That it's this very, very incredibly rapid momentary uh, existence. Coming in, disappearing, coming in, disappearing. And person will say, that's the ultimate nature of things. Practice in another way, and these, these coexist within our tradition... Present another way, much more relaxed, open awareness, spacious awareness, allowing everything to be in that space, to come and go. And one begins, again, following this practice with, with care, with love. Um, what begins to kind of become prominent in the experience is a sense of awareness as something vast, unchanging, accommodating everything, beautiful, objects, sounds, body sensations, thoughts, all experience is born out of that awareness and disappears back into it effortlessly. effortlessly. And not even more than the person takes it a little bit deeper, it's almost like the, the texture of experience itself begins to feel the same as the texture of awareness. Like all things are awareness. All things are the play of awareness coming out of that awareness, disappearing back. Says, that's the ultimate nature of things. That's the ultimate nature of awareness and the ultimate nature of things. Which is true. You get people... These are arguments that go on. Which is true. A really skilled practitioner, this is very possible can practice enough in one way of practice another that actually in the course of one sitting they can go between one sense of thing and another sense of thing. Very possible. It seems in those experiences that one is in touch with the truth. They have such a sense of convincingness to them, it seems. And I, I don't want to say, as we said, not to discard this stuff too quickly. It seems they're so true. But there's something here, something here. And it has to do with the nature of perception. To see consciousness as something very rapidly arising and disappearing, it will seem that way when the perception is a certain way of rapid arising disappearing. And consciousness will seem another way when the perception is very wide. Consciousness is tied in with perception. These are both perceptions. It can move. It can move. What we perceive as reality can move. And something in that moving back and forth is something in the moving that implies something about the truth.
something in the moving that implies something about the truth. There's something here we need to question very deeply our assumptions about perception, about perception. Even really obvious stuff like that things are impermanent. Are they? Maybe they're not. Because it seems so obvious everything's impermanent. We say if they're not impermanent, they must be permanent. But is that the only alternative? Very, very difficult. Nagarjuna was, was probably the, the second most influential figure in, in, in the Dharma since the Buddha. You know, the Buddha and then Nagarjuna. In many ways, the father of the Mahayana. He said, the ultimate truth of things, there's this beautiful, beautiful phrase, the ultimate truth of things is indivisible, inconceivable, and incommunicable. Indivisible, inconceivable, and incommunicable. And we may hear that, and the heart may resonate with that. And so, well, what am I, how am I going to, what am I going to do with language then, if it's incommunicable and inconceivable? How, and this is a very important question, how am I going to move towards the truth? How am I going to move towards the truth? If that's the case, the ultimate truth. Broadly speaking, and again this is making too much of a differentiation, broadly speaking, we could say, how am I going to move towards the truth? Two kinds of approaches. One we could call intuitive intuitively moving towards the truth. You know, sometimes being in the silence here, being on retreat, in, in, in the stillness, uh, sometimes at night uh, or early in the morning, everything is still, everything is silent, the house is silent, the fields are silent, the sky is silent. Someone's person listening to that silence surrendering to that silence, drawing close to that silence, wrapping themselves in silence. Something of a sense in and through that silence of something. Something timeless, not of time. Something that's not of of birth and death. And it's intuitive the way it's being sensed. It's beyond concepts. And somehow the being feels as if it's touched, as if almost through a veil, it's drawing close to something. Very possible, very beautiful movement of consciousness. In a way, the intuitive is somehow set against what we could call, I don't know if it's the right word, the analytical, or moving towards ultimate truth analytically. And sometimes people really do make this a kind of opposition, intuitive versus analytical. And I would say, be really careful here. Be really careful. Just showing for me, both have been and are really, really important. Both of them. Uh, oftentimes the analytical gets a little bit of the short end of the stick and a little bit dismissed. So I, I, I say they're both really important, but I just kind of want to speak up in defense of the analytical a little bit, just because in our circles it often gets a bit rejected. It can be very easy to assume that using concepts, it would be impossible to go beyond concepts. It sounds natural enough. How could I possibly go beyond concepts using concepts? But a question, is that actually true? Is it true? We can assume that if we let go of concepts, that there's a kind of purity of approach having let go of concepts. But again, maybe, maybe, it's just that we're not aware of a subtle level of conceptuality and and view operating in consciousness. And if that's the case, it might be that that subtle level of conceptuality is only findable through conceptuality. It might be the case. Again, sometimes people reject the more analytical approach because there's a sense that if I use my head, then my heart must close down. If, if I'm bringing in the analysis, then the heart must somehow must be heartless. And again, I just question whether that's true. The other thing to say is that if we talk about ultimate truth, 
it's actually in a very profound sense counterintuitive the ultimate truth of things is deeply counterintuitive it's counterintuitive it's not intuitive it's something extremely radical but to me i really want to say they're both in a way, I see too much kind of argument about this. They're both really important avenues and vehicles towards the truth, the intuitive and the analytical. It's like having two legs. I want to get from here to there. Why hop? I've got two legs. Why can't I just walk? But to say a little bit about the analytical, it's like we want to understand perception. The Buddha said to understand the truth, one needs to understand perception begin to see that the appearance of things, the appearance of things, all things, internal and external, it depends on how we're looking. It depends on the state of the mind and the heart. When I'm angry, life and things and the world appear a certain way. When there's love there, it appears a certain way. When there's calmness there, it appears a certain way. When there's equanimity, it appears a certain way. When there's joy, when there's whatever. Depending on the heart and the mind, reality appears a certain way. There's something to this. In a way, it's so obvious, so obvious to us. Something to following that, following it, following it deeply. What we begin to see as we follow this deeply is that clinging is extremely significant in this. The more we cling, the more we obscure of the truth. Clinging obscures the truth on a gross level and on a subtle level. And as we release clinging, the more we let go and release clinging, in a way, truth at every level becomes clearer. It becomes clearer to us. The release of clinging releases the truth, in a way, to to be seen. We begin to see the way the mind constructs and compounds things. That's what the mind does. It's a function of the mind, is to construct and to compound. That's, in a way, a definition of the mind. It constructs and it compounds reality. We begin to see this, and as we let go of clinging... It's almost like the truth begins to shine through. We begin to see that. It begins to dawn to the degree that we let go of clinging. When we see this compounding and we begin to not support that building process, not support perceptions with the mind, the perceptions, the world of perception and the mind itself, they begin to fade away. They begin to fade away as we do not support them through assenting to and collaborating in this compounding uh, process. The world and the mind fade away, begin to fade away, because we're not making a thing. We're not making this. We're not making that. We're not making a subject and an object, a mind and a world, a self, a a this, a that, a floor, a time, or whatever. We begin to see through this. It happens a little, just a little bit, and then more and more. The self, the world, the mind, awareness, the present moment, things we take so much for granted are actually maybe not real not real in the way that they seem to be so obviously. They may be not real in the way that they seem to be. As a practitioner goes into this, you actually see there's nowhere to stand. You can't stand in awareness. You can't stand in the now. They are not ultimately real. can't stand certainly in the self or the mind or the present moment or, or the world of bare attention nowhere to stand and really begin to get a sense on a very deep level what this means when Nagarjuna says inconceivable inconceivable is the nature of ultimate truth it's a beautiful uh, saying of Jesus foxes have holes birds have nests but the son of man let's say someone who lives in the truth 
has nowhere to lay his head, nowhere to lay their head. Or, or the Buddha, one who dwells nowhere, one who dwells nowhere, dwells in peace and dwells in freedom. One who dwells nowhere, dwells in peace and dwells in freedom. There's a very deep, uh, more mystical meaning of, of what these, these sayings uh, say. So it's not saying that, that nothing exists at all. It's absolutely not saying. It's not a kind of nihilism. It's really not a nihilism. It's, it's a kind of... This teaching of emptiness is a non-attachment to views. It's, what, it's what's called in the deeper sense the middle way. The middle way. Things, all things, all things, absolutely all things, are not something and they are not nothing. They're not something and they're not nothing. It's this... The depth of this teaching of emptiness and, and the dependent arising of things, the middle ways, it's uh, inconceivably profound. So as human beings and as practitioners, if, if we want to, if we want to make this knowing of the truth a priority in our life, if the heart feels like I want to know that, if we prioritize the truth, we can understand this. We can know this. We are capable of this as human beings if it's a priority. If it's not, as a, if it's not a priority, it's not going to happen. But if it's a priority, we can know this. We can understand the heart, the consciousness can open to this. If we care deeply about the truth, deeply in, in, in the fibre of our being, if we care about the truth, sometimes that journey, this journey into, into the depth of truth is not easy, is not easy. And a person feels, they grapple with this and they wrestle, and it's, is it this or is it this and how do I go forward? And, and it, it, one really feels the discomfort of that at times, one wrestling to the point of tears sometimes. And you know what? That's okay. It's part of the beauty. It's part of the passion. It's part of the care. It's something, it's something lovely. Absolutely lovely. Why should it always be easy? This is not easy to understand this stuff. And that's not to always say that, of course, having truth and freedom as a priority will always be a kind of sour-faced struggle. Of course not. And it's a very beautiful, uh, can be at times a joyful journey. But there is a freedom... I, I would say very much there's a freedom in prioritizing this stuff, in prioritizing the truth. It relativizes everything else. We're no longer shackled. If, I, if something comes up in the being and I say freedom, truth, is what I care about more than anything else, maybe I haven't moved anywhere nearer in terms of understanding or drawing closer to the truth, but somehow in that asserting of the priority in my life, a lot of shackles go away. Relativizes a lot. Concern: What do people think of me? Is my job good enough? Is what's my career moved? Is my house? Money? All that relativizes a lot. There's freedom just in the prioritizing. Just want to end with with actually another another of a saying of Jesus, and. Sometimes he's saying it is very, can be very difficult to understand. There's obviously different traditions interpret them differently and whatever, but it can be very difficult but to, to, to have a certain view and, or a certain approach and take it in, in a more mystical way, what it might mean. What if, in this, in this saying of Jesus, we substitute when he says I or me, we substitute that with truth, the word truth and ultimate truth. So when he talks about me or I, he's meaning the truth, the ultimate truth of things. Come to me, come to me, come to the truth. All you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Yoke, we get this word yoga, or yoke comes from the word yoga. Union. Take my yoke upon you. In other words, discover the truth. Live in the truth. Live from that truth. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Sometimes just hearing it a different way is extraordinarily profound, extraordinarily beautiful, I think. But to live in the truth, to live in the truth, is to live unburdened, unburdened by, by life and death. We could, we could put it less extreme, say, to the degree that we live in the truth, is the degree that we feel ourselves unburdened by life and death. And love, acts of love, acts of generosity manifest naturally, manifest naturally out of that heart that's close to the truth, that's open to the truth. Naturally, more and more, more and more we are moving towards the truth, in touch with the truth, the more and more the heart doesn't want to be constrained in in self-centeredness and non-generosity. Acts of love just naturally come from that. And as I say, as human beings, as practitioners, we can know this. We absolutely can know this. It's there for us. Let's have a little bit of quiet time together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.